From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, and this is a podcast about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. I'm Alfred Turner, and our guest today is veteran journalist Adam Parker. Parker covered just about everything for the Post and Courier newspaper in Charleston, though he has spent most of his time writing about race, religion, and the arts. In his latest book, Us, a journalist's look at the culture, conflict, and creativity of the South, Adam offers a collection of in-depth stories published over the course of nearly 20 years that reveal the breadth and scope of his uncanny ability to pull back the curtain and take a hard look at ourselves and our community. Adam, glad to have you back on the journal. Great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about you, because in the material about your latest book, us, a journalist's look at culture, conflict, and creativity of the South, yeah. mentions 20 years. So for almost a historic generation, <laughs> you've been working at the Post and Courier, Are right? you calling me old? You're calling me old, aren't you? That's well, what you're doing, Walter. Hey, you're calling me old. I'm almost 80. I, I can do, you're, you're just a young whippersnapper. <laughs> okay. But no, that, that's an important thing because a generation, how did you, you know, yeah. covering things when you first went to work? for the Post and Courier versus today? Well, you know, one strives not to repeat oneself um, too often, although that happens. There are these cycles where, you know, you, you write about a particular story and then five years later you find yourself writing about the same thing again, and so you have to find a different way to put it. And, and maybe it's the current context that provides you part of the solution. Um, but that's happened. I have actually written similar stories <laughs> repeatedly over the years, right? Such as? Sometimes it's a follow-up story, a development, but it's not much of a development. Like there's a little new tidbit, which gives you an excuse to write the story and revisit the topic. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you're just kind of reminding readers of what you wrote the first time <laughs> around, you know. So, um, and, and, uh, and there are issues, issues that I remember uh, writing early on about abortion, Mm -hmm. um, and there was a, a young woman I relied on. She was sort of the protagonist of the story. And um, and then, of course, years later, I touched on it again. Or colleagues would do that. You know, the, the next generation of reporters would arrive, and then they'd start writing some of the same stories I wrote five, six, seven years before or whatever. Which is fine because well, are, are, do y'all have a morgue? Could they go to your to pull yeah. it up and see what you had already that you'd already covered the story? Yeah, and and reporters do do that. Maybe not as often as they should, but but they do. They they dig back into the archives or into the morgue to see what was previously written, and they can actually draw from those articles too and borrow stuff. You know, it's all owned <laughs> by the Post and Courier. Well. When you said, you know, you have to remind people of what had gone before, as a historian, I found more and more I had to do background yeah. material because you, at one point you could assume that a general audience knew the basic facts about colonial South Carolina or that there was a civil war, that kind of thing. But then you had, I found out over the course of my 40 years that the general knowledge was not there. Yeah, it changes and has diminished really over time. That's true. The upside, though, is that you have new audiences that 
that appear. You know, over time, you have new people moving to the area, moving to the state, moving to Charleston. They pick up the Post and Courier, they're reading stuff. So they don't know that six years earlier I wrote about X, you know, and here they are reading something or getting some background or getting what I intended to be merely a reminder. But for them, it's new information. So it's kind of nice in a way to think that you're reaching new readers as you go along. You're, if your longevity it, it sort of benefits the public in a sense, uh, you have institutional knowledge, you have a broader awareness of what's going on generally in South Carolina, and you're able to bring all that to bear, and new readers benefit. I must say, over the years of working with journalists, I can remember about every five years, some new reporter from Greenville or Columbia, wherever, would discover the legislative state and have to explain to them, <laughs> right. uh, no, it's not anything new. It's uh, been with us since the 18th century. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they they had discovered this new thing. They were so hot to talk about. I had to tell them it wasn't really a new story. But, you know, there's an upside to that, too. Because as young people especially discover things, they're enthusiastic about them, oh, potentially. Yeah. And then they bring that enthusiasm to bear on their work. And, I mean, obviously you don't want to come across as naive. But by the same token, if you imbue an article you're writing with a little hint of your own enthusiasm about a particular subject or your, your sense of wonder or discovery, that's contagious. Readers pick up on that, I think. So, I don't know. You know, there are pros and cons to all this stuff. And, um, and it's very interesting to kind of look back at a nearly 20-year career at the Post and Courier now and, uh, and think, well, that's kind of why there's this book, you know, because I was looking back and thinking, wow, there's like some good stuff that I've written. Mm -hmm. you know, not all of it, but some of it is <laughs> <laughs> really good. And, and it would be a pity to just let it sort of sit in the morgue, right, of the newspaper for all eternity. Let's bring it back to life, especially the stories that are remain interesting and relevant today. Well, I think of your subtitle, A Look at Culture, Conflict, and Creativity, Race, Religion. Yeah. It's still front-page news in South Carolina. Yeah, I have to tell you, though, I, I, I think I'm suffering from a mild form of imposter syndrome. Why is that? Well, because I'm sitting here with you. Um, I, I'm not a native of South Carolina. I'm I, not either. Oh, well, thank God. <laughs> I, I feel much better now. Uh, much better. But I, you, I am. Oh, but, but, all right. <laughs> Alfred is. Yeah. And you wrote the book on South Carolina, you know, the history of South Carolina. So I, I'm, and I feel like an interloper. Well, well, you are in Charleston, and of course, if you weren't birthed there, it doesn't count. I know. Yeah, ever. <laughs> you know, I think like if you're if you move to New York City and you're there for, some say, a minimum of five years, I'd suggest maybe ten, then you become a New Yorker. You know, you just are a New Yorker now, and it's the sort of city that absorbs people and gives them a new identity anyway. So that's fine, but not here. Here you have to be born here. So where did you come from? I came from, I was born in Detroit. Oh, okay. I grew up in the Midwest, and I, then I lived in New York City for a long time. Okay. And then I moved here, 2004. Where'd you go to college? So I've sort of um, 
changed my careers as I went along. I started off as a musician. Oh, what what instrument? I played violin as a kid. Okay. For a long time in orchestras and stuff. And then in high school, after my voice changed, I guess, I became a singer. And I got pretty serious about singing. I loved it. So I switched and that became voice became my primary so, instrument. So did you go to the University of Indiana? They have a great music program. They do. No, I went to the University of Michigan. Okay. And then I went to New York to the Manhattan School of Music. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I figured, you know, I'm going to have a career in music, right? Might as well go for it. Um, little did I know. But um, so, I, you know, I did that. I did the classical music thing for a while, and then I was in a rock and roll band for a while. That was fun. How and when did you switch to journalism? So I'm in New York City. I, I finish with school. I need, like, income. So I get a series of small jobs, and then I finally land an okay job at this music-related company called Muse, M-U-Z-E. They made these uh, touchscreen kiosks, and they had a database, a music database that they would license to all the music stores. And from there, I, my, my quote-unquote business career began, really. And, and I went to a sister company that had nothing to do with music anymore, but it still had something to do with kiosks. And then from there, I went into financial services, which makes me laugh. And I did that for So a while. you're really my age, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, Walter. And, uh, and I, to make a long story short, I think I, I realized maybe six or seven years into this decade or so of, of in the business world that I was um, traveling along a dead end, shall we say. Mm-hmm. I was dealing with touchscreen kiosks and ATMs that were very limited and at the time weren't going to do much more than what they did. And so I went back to school and became a journalist. Okay. And where did you go back to school? I went to Columbia. And then after Columbia? And then I came here. So I interned with the Christian Science Monitor, which was terrific, in New York City. Great place to intern. Yeah. they, They were fantastic. You know, people don't remember that that used to be one of the great newspapers. It It was, yeah. It's still actually okay. But it was a terrific newspaper and a great internship experience. I did it for about a year. I lingered there. It was supposed to be a semester, but I like went on for a while and um, had a terrific uh, supervisor. He was so helpful and learned a lot. And then moved. We moved to South Carolina. We came to Charleston. My wife was looking for a tenure track position and got one at the College of Charleston. And I was looking for a solid long-term newspaper job and pounded on the door of the Post and Courier and they sort of opened it an inch and looked out and said, who the hell are you? (laughs) And I stuck my foot in the door and forced my way in, basically. Started on the copy desk. And and happily ever after. Yeah. They said, I remember at the time, Andy Owens was the, the chief of the copy desk and he said, you know, we need you to commit to a minimum of a two or three years, whatever it was, on the copy desk. We know you want to be a writer, but, you know, we need it. First things first. I said, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, I just wanted to be working Mm -hmm. for a newspaper. And after about, I think it was like eight months, you know, they like pushed me over to the writing side of the paper. And you began as just a general reporter. Yeah, general assignment reporter, just covering all kinds of things. On the weekends, I would cover breaking news, fires and accidents and all kinds of things and dash off to this intersection or that neighborhood um, and write about all kinds of things like that on deadlines, sometimes 
I'd come back with three or four stories that I'd have to kick out. Well, hey, if you did flooding, you could have a story every other day. So, gentlemen, I have to bring this up. We're about 20 minutes in here, and I'd like to talk about some of the stuff that's in the book. Oh, the book. The book. Oh, the book. Uh, <laughs> if if I might jump in, I was just going to say I, I love the fact that in your book, you have staked out a very large area of culture, conflict, and creativity of the South, I guess through the lens of Charleston and South Carolina. So, so what about what about culture? You probably have some favorite stories in there, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's hard to pick a real favorite, but yeah, there's some. So I guess just as for context, I started off as a general assignment reporter, and then I went to the religion beat, and I wrote for the faith and value section. And I did that for about six years or so, seven maybe. And then I switched to the arts world, covered arts and culture, and wrote for the arts section or the life section, as it's now called. And currently, and for the last maybe four years, I've been covering race and history. Okay. So that gave me a kind of big broad view. Talk about culture, you know. Mm-hmm. So a couple of favorite stories. One is about a dying monk at Mepkin Abbey okay. who had cancer. Okay. A lot of listeners might not know about Mepkin Abbey. Oh, Mepkin is fantastic. Uh, yeah. Former plantation of Henry Lawrence mm-hmm. and courtesy of Claire Booth Luce was uh, made a gift as a monastery mm-hmm. to the Cistercians. And it's an incredible place to have a retreat. It's a Fabulous setting on the river. It's stunning. It's stunning. And it's important to point out that the brothers there have been very active in land conservation efforts. Um, They've been very engaged in the community. They're not sequestered. You know, they get in their cars and they drive to meetings in Charleston and whatever as required. So they've been very active in the conservation movement here in South Carolina for a while. But certainly now they're focused on... Uh, history and racial reconciliation. They're involved in an effort to restore and preserve Tavo Chapel, which was gifted to the black community of Cordsville in that area way back and now has fallen into huge disrepair. And um, Tavo Chapel is right near Strawberry Chapel and right near Mepkin Abbey. And there's a lot of discussion in in Berkeley County about creating a sacred corridor there. Anyway, Mepkin is really an extraordinary place with some extraordinary people who um, are very thoughtful and caring and amazingly undogmatic. They're very open to the world and open to many points of view and open to seekers, and questioners and doubters and everybody, really. It's quite quite extraordinary. So there was a monk there, this was many years ago now, who was diagnosed with cancer, uh, lived with it for many years, but then eventually just decided to quit all the treatments and the meds because it was driving him crazy and causing pain and discomfort. And he was ready and actually happy, happy and excited to die. And I found that kind of fascinating and interesting. And so I hung out with him for a while and heard about his story and and wrote a profile. Ultimate gift, Brother Edward. Brother Edward. Yeah. So that's one of my favorite stories in the book, I would say. Mm. Um, There's a 
profile of Vertime Grosvenor, mm-hmm. the the late griot and chef and and NPR reporter and all. always used to be very happy when she came on the radio. Yeah, I always was. Yeah. yeah, she is amazing, just amazing. And there's an interesting profile in the book about of Polly Shepard. Polly was one of the survivors of the 2015 Emanuel AME Church shooting. And she's just kind of a beautiful soul and a really nice person. And I wondered, this sometimes this is how a story will start, right? It's just I'm curious about something. And I wondered how it is that she moves on. How, how does she manage that trauma. I mean, she was in the thick of it. She was rushing to the aid after the shooter left of the dying. And anyway, I we don't have to get into the gory details. I was just very fascinated by how it is that a person processes that kind of experience mm-hmm. and manages to live a life. So I wanted to learn that. And I hung out with her and wrote a profile kind of about that. And then Omar, the opera, Rhiannon Giddens and Michael Abels were commissioned by Spoleto Festival to write this amazing opera about a Muslim, an enslaved Muslim from Senegal who came first to Charleston mm-hmm. uh, just before the transatlantic slave trade was ba- banned. Um, he came in, I think, 1807, like mm-hmm. literally a couple of months mm-hmm. before the ban took effect on January 1st, 1808. And just his story is sort of fascinating, right? He's, people don't really associate Islam with American slavery, but maybe 20% of enslaved Africans were Muslim? Well, and the late Charles Joyner, who did all his work in the Georgetown area, Baltimore, found in planners' journals where when meat was distributed to enslaved persons, some always got beef and never pork. Right. And some planters noted enslaved people times when they were being praying. It wasn't in every planter's journal. That was a, a key that, yes, they were there. They were there. And there was an F, and there was a certain independence, too, among the Muslims. You know, they, they were trying hard to hold on, I think. So it was there was a lot of tension. And Omar is a particularly interesting story. He was older when he came, and he eventually sort of became gained this reputation as a as an elder, thoughtful person of sorts. And his owner in North Carolina tried to convert him to Christianity, but but basically treated him with a degree of respect, gave him his own abode to live in, allowed him to write and read, and encouraged him to write his autobiography, which is how the opera got started. Mm -hmm. And I was curious about the making of a new American opera. How does that work? I mean, here's an interesting opportunity to follow along from the beginning and observe how a new opera is created. No less by Rhiannon Giddens and Michael Abels, two extraordinary musicians. Aha, uh-huh. and you had a musical training background. Right, I have. So, um, so it made sense for me to, to want to do this and to pitch it. And the editors, somewhat to my surprise, embraced the idea fervently. And, and then we 
you know, did this kind of amazing, really long narrative, creative uh, story that, again, you just don't really find in most newspapers. And, uh, you know, the story was beautiful online, all the photos and the videos, and it was quite a project. So that's a favorite. Oh, the, the very first story in the book, it's called A Mother's Love, and it's about a slave sack. Ah, uh, yes, at Middleton Place. At Middleton Place. Yeah, they, they found this sack that this mother had sewn and, and written on. Uh, like a quilt style, to give to her daughter, I think it was, as they were separated because of slavery. I get, the daughter was sold off. It's this sort of tragic story that happened again and again and again. And this object kind of embodies this great human tragedy. And there it is at Middleton Place. Now it's at the International African American Museum on loan. But see, an interesting part of that story is the evolution of how slavery was interpreted at Middleton Place and the whole black experience. And they're leaping on this to save that artifact and then bring it back to South Carolina. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't the only such effort. Uh, Middleton Place and some of the other um, historic sites have been... Working much harder in the last, what, what would you say, 20, 25 years? It's yeah. been changing a lot. Yeah. And um, there's really not not so much whitewashing or romanticization anymore. You know, there a lot of these places are doing much better telling the full story and embracing the opportunity to kind of present things like Ashley's sack. Well, I think things are happening better in Charleston and, and other places in South Carolina than in other parts of the country. Yeah, you know, in a way. I wish it would go even further. Well, do you ever think we'll... It's not always a pleasant story. Do you ever think we'll really reach a kind of racial reconciliation? Or are we just going to plug along and kind of do things incrementally? That is, first of all, an intriguing question. It's also a very difficult question. Question. You want to hear my fantasy? I have I have a dream. Okay. Here's my dream. I think it's actually realistic, but it would require people to really kind of embrace it as a, a, a big project. One of my pet peeves about Charleston <laughs> is the 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 lack of big thinking and big risk taking. And I know there's all kinds of reasons for it, and you know that's a whole nother podcast, probably. Nevertheless, I think Charleston has a remarkable opportunity, a unique opportunity. Nowhere else in the country, I think, it, it is uh, is in this position. In Charleston, we have sort of the four legs of the table, all in one place. We have <clears throat> cultural institutions. I'm talking about racial reconciliation here. We have cultural institutions. We have academic institutions. We have historic sites out in the landscape mm-hmm. where the history actually happened. Mm-hmm. And we have a kind of um, philanthropic, nonprofit sector uh, that can help provide the necessary support, financial and otherwise. So you have these four ingredients now, especially with the opening of the International African American Museum. 
all consolidated in one place. Imagine if we could find a way to tie them all together, like put the top of the table on those four legs, right? Connect it all up. Charleston could theoretically become a global destination, the destination for African-American studies and African-American history. Anything you want, like that, Charleston is the epicenter in North America, one of the epicenters, probably the epicenter mm-hmm. of slavery and the African-American experience. 40% of all enslaved Africans came through Charleston to North America, mm-hmm. came through Charleston. It just seems to me that there's a tremendous opportunity to tie it all together mm-hmm. and present Charleston not as the number one tourist site listed by Condé Nast, but as the number one place in the world to work on racial reconciliation. How and about a, that? And a, and a place where there is an anchor of history, so to speak. It's all there. Everything we need. Well, yeah. looking, looking again back at the title of your book, we've got some culture and conflict in what we've been discussing and some creativity, too, with the opera Omar. Are, are there any stories from the create, creativity end that you might want to talk about in the last 10 minutes or so? Because we're, we're nearing the end of our podcast. Oh, no. So the book is sort of separated, divided into four main sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, race and history, religion, people, profiles basically of interesting people, and the artistic impulse. So, yeah, there's, um, there's several stories about... Um, related to the arts, there's a an interesting examination of Alice Ravenel, Hughie Smith, mm-hmm. uh, her work, which is um, beautiful. These watercolors. Uh, she was part of the Charleston Renaissance in the early 1900s, but they do sort of raise concerns of nostalgic romanticization of a. Uh, what was really an ugly period of history. And so there's a story in there that kind of looks at that dichotomy, um, that conflict between the beauty of the work Hmm. and the ugliness that lies behind it. And then there's there's a profile of Charles Wadsworth, uh, who... The inimitable Charles Wadsworth. The inimitable Charles Wadsworth. Uh, who start was one of the original musical staffers of the Spoleto Festival, and he had started the chamber music series in Italy under Giancarlo Minotti, and Minotti asked him to start it here in Charleston, and so he did, and uh, this was right at the point where he was retiring. I mm-hmm. think uh, he was getting ready to retire and hand the baton off, so to speak. And so I wrote a profile about him. And then there's, um, there's another interesting story toward the back of the book about uh, this effort by uh, a local artist in Charleston to paint. Basically, she came upon these historical records, these photographs mm-hmm. of homes that had been bulldozed when they made the Crosstown, uh, the I-26 extension through Charleston across the peninsula. She was fascinated by these photographs. Andrea Hazel is her name. A lot of them have these like officials doing the surveys of the property because they're all preparing, right? The Department of Transportation and the federal government, they're all preparing to 
using eminent domain to remove these homes. Well, that was a really vibrant, mostly middle-class black neighborhood that really was severely damaged by the building of the highway right through it. And so Andrea did these beautiful, small, detailed, delicate watercolors of these homes, sometimes with figures there, these missing homes, these homes that no longer exist. And it's somehow so poignant to to look at these images. It's just very touching. So there's a story in there about her series of, uh, of paintings. The Gibbs took notice, and I think she was a guest artist at the Gibbs for a while, a year or two ago, and it's, it's quite lovely. The subtext to that, what you just talked about, the houses for the Crosstown, that was built, that, that was badly filled land, which was, That's right. was a very bit. marshy, uh, so the property values were low, which is one reason why the highway department chose that, because that, yeah. the land was relatively cheap. Uh, right. And the residents were black. Yeah. Well, there were some movers and shakers in that neighborhood, including Arthur Brown, who ran the NAACP. He had mm-hmm. a house just off of what's now the Crosstown. In fact, I think they lost their house, that family, the Brown yeah. family. And, of course, the Crosstown still floods. Better now. They yeah. finally put in, well, some years ago, they finally put in the pumping stations yeah. and the bigger thing. And so it's much, much better now. But All right. Well, yeah. Adam, I hate to tell you, Alfred's giving the wind up. It's, it's, it's time to conclude this chapter yes. Yes. of Walter Edgar's podcast. And uh, I think we need to have you back. Well, there's we've lots got, more to talk lots, about. Lots to cover. So, Adam Parker, thank you for being with us again today well, thank on the you. journal. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was a lot of fun having Adam back on the journal. Adam Parker has been living with us here in South Carolina for nearly a historic generation. He is an astute observer, a good journalist, and he's able to take our stories and tell them well. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. As always, we want to remind you that the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of our podcast are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org as well as on the SCETV app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and Pandora. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. We'll talk again soon.